What is going on, Wellness Gang? Welcome back to Embodied Wellness Radio, a podcast framed around making women healthy again. My name is Sarah Collins. And my name is Denon Maximchuk. On this show, we do both solo episodes with Sarah and I, where we cover specific challenges and topics that come up in our functional female health practice that we think can also be of value to you. And then we also bring interviews every couple of weeks with doctors, brands, and individuals who we believe are some of the brightest minds in the world who are impactful in their specific fields and leading the charge in impacting world health. Today's episode is a part one of three series about digestion. Would you like to give them a little bit of a preview, my love? Yeah, so we're going to basically answer the question, my digestion is off, now what? In three different parts. And this is really important to discuss because lots of clients come to us with digestive issues and they aren't really sure of what help they need, what's going on, where to go, and digestion is incredibly complex. And so it's important to recognize, well, we can't even go through all of them in three episodes, a lot of the main causative factors that could be contributing to somebody's digestive issues. So in today's discussion, we're going to talk about the foundations, because something else I've seen quite commonly with clients is they'll start with us and they'll say, you know, I have such bad digestive issues. I'm always farting. I'm always running to the bathroom. I have chronic bloating, et cetera, et cetera. And when I take a look at their food log, they're eating lots and lots of foods or they have certain lifestyle habits that would contribute to digestive issues. And so it's really important to always make sure that we have a solid foundation in place before we even start to look at moving into any sort of protocol, testing, and then if a client already has gone through the stage or the first stage we take all of our clients through, which is a foundation phase, and we still are seeing issues, that's when we would move into testing or looking at deficiencies and really trying to deep dive into what might be out of balance in the gut. But again, starting with the foundations is so important, which is what we're gonna be covering on today's episode. So what are we gonna start with today? So today we're going to give you five simple things that are foundational for you to start to think about and start to notice if you are experiencing digestive issues. And even if you're not experiencing digestive issues, having a strong, robust, well-functioning digestive system is key for overall health, for your energy, for your hormones. And so every single person can benefit from the five things that we're going to be discussing today. It's actually kind of funny because when you say that people might not have digestive issues, I think a lot of the time people do have digestive issues and don't realize it because they think just like flatulence and farting is normal. They think that constipation once or twice a month or even every week is totally normal. And they think that just naturally having an upset stomach when they eat certain foods uh, is normal. And it's not normal. We've just adapted and regulated to thinking that the reality is that many foods are hard to eat when truly the reality is that many foods uh, in question should not be. Right. And I think it is important. Thank you for bringing that up that we talk a little bit about what what would it look like if your digestion is off and what would a healthy digestive system look like? Because you're right. Something can become so normal or common to somebody that they think that's just the way it is. And they don't even necessarily know that it could be better or different. And I was just discussing with a client the other day and she was like, yeah, you know, when I go on vacation and all of my friends, like they're able to just eat three meals a day. And I'm so like constipated that I can't even think about eating again, or they're all wearing like these tight clothes. And I'm always like, basically um, deciding what to wear based off of my level of bloat. And she didn't necessarily realize it was abnormal until she was around other people and saw that, in fact, that is not normal. So it is really important to talk about some manifestations of an unhealthy gut and also what a healthy gut looks like before we get started in today's discussion. Now, some of the most obvious 
symptoms of an unhealthy gut are, as Denon mentioned, having lots of gas, whether it's more so like trapped air kind of gas or smelly gas. Bloating is a really common one. So experiencing stomach distension or having a feeling of fullness and distension after eating meals or for some people and in some imbalances, even in the morning with water or not having anything to eat. Having constipation. Now, constipation is defined as not having the full evacuation of your bowels. So in a healthy digestive system, we want to be having at least a minimum of one quality poop a day. And it shouldn't be forced. You shouldn't be sitting on the toilet trying to push it out. Shouldn't be coming in little pebbles. Maybe we'll do a whole podcast on healthy poo. (laughs) And if you were to look it up on the Bristol stool chart, you can kind of compare what your poo looks like versus what a healthy bowel movement would look like. So constipation is one. Loose stools and diarrhea is another one. So having like five, six bowel movements a day or if they're super runny or super watery, that's not normal either. Burping a lot is another sign of unhealthy digestion. Bad breath. And those would be and stomach pain and nausea. And those would be some of the common ones that you would see right in the GI tract. So directly related to your stomach and digestion, but you can also start to see some systemic manifestations of an unhealthy gut, such as acne, eczema, skin rashes, brain fog, joint pain, just general fatigue. And so what happens in the gut doesn't just stay in the gut. It can also affect other systems of your body. And quite commonly, your gut health would, if it's off, would have other manifestations in other areas of your body as well. It will. And it almost certainly will. Mm -hmm. And while my mind is on it, I was actually just thinking what we should call the poop podcast. We should call it shit talking with Sarah. (laughs) All right. That could be the first of many (laughs) different series. (laughs) I'm over here trying to educate you and Denon's just thinking of taglines for poop. (laughs) All right. So let's talk about a healthy digestive system. A healthy digestive system has regular bowel movements, one to three a day, and they're easy to pass, well-formed. A healthy digestive system is not experiencing bloating, uh, many food sensitivities, which is one I skipped over in the unhealthy gut. So if you have a lot of food sensitivities, that would be indicative that something is going on in your digestive system. A healthy gut, you would not be experiencing gas, burping, any sort of changes to your bowel movements. You would be able to digest food really well. Hunger is regulated and you wouldn't be feeling weird when you eat or having any sort of anxiety around eating certain types of foods, thinking that it might affect you in a certain way. And it's really, really common for those who have digestive issues to feel that way around food where They almost get to a point where they're anxious to eat something if they don't know exactly what's in it because they're scared of how it might affect you. And so even if you've gotten into symptom management where you know the foods you digest well and it's a small handful of foods, that's still not very healthy for your digestive system. So we will do a a whole podcast maybe on what a healthy digestive system looks like. But for today, those are the main ones that are important to know before we begin this discussion. So just on that first topic, would a good breakaway project for our listeners to begin developing an awareness and a connection with the foods and their individual reactions to them, uh, maybe might be starting to take notes throughout the day and like essentially developing their own version of a food log. Like for example, if I wake up, uh, drink water, eat food, and then 30 minutes later, take notes, like how do I feel? How is my energy right now? Did my energy dip or is it kind of, you know, increased but gradual like i know for me like when i'm um when i'm eating more regimented and it's easier to notice um when my body isn't maybe feeling too good or is highly affected by other things it's only when i'm really eating in a, in a way that I'm, I'm more aware of the slight changes like in the summer last year when 
we went traveling and I ate a salad that had uncooked kale in it. And it almost immediately made me look like I was six months pregnant. I was able to notice that I felt bloated. I looked bloated, like my stomach was hard as a rock and not like in a muscular way, but it was like just just distended out. So for people who are creating these more closer awarenesses with their food, would this be a good actionable item for them to use? Yeah, that was actually on my list. So let's get into it. It was actually number two, but we'll just shift it into number one since Denon brought it up. And just a a little FYI for people, we often honestly prepare these podcasts like 10 to 20 minutes before we record because we happen, if we like have a break in the day, we're like, hey, we should do a podcast. So without seeing Sarah's notes um, that she, she took down quickly before this, it's funny to see where our philosophies kind of intersect. With that in mind, it seems seamless for us to discuss these things because they are so common in clients and in our practice that really I'm thinking about them all the time. And all of the information that I share with you all is what I practice with my clients as well. So as Denon mentioned, food logs, log your symptoms, log what you're eating and look for patterns. I'm going to quote myself here and we should all get this put on t-shirts. There are no mysteries. There are only unsolved patterns. And I say this because clients are like, oh, you know, randomly I da da da, randomly I da da da. And I'm like, sista, let's backtrack. There's nothing random about it. You perceive it as random because you haven't actually looked at what you're doing and notice the times that these symptoms are coming up. So here's how a food log could look, and then we'll talk a little bit more about it. So if you're experiencing digestive issues, you want to start every single day how you feel in the morning. Are you bloated, rated on a scale of 1 to 10? Do you have maybe stomach pain? What are your energy levels like when you wake up? And then write down what time you're eating things at. So I'll give you an example. 7 a.m. breakfast had two eggs plus sauteed kale plus glass of orange juice, whatever the heck you're eating for breakfast. Do not recommend eating kale for breakfast, but uh, (laughs) we'll talk about that later. We'll save that one for another pod. So then you would write down breakfast at seven and you would mark your bloating after breakfast. So maybe one hour you notice your bloating went up to like a four out of 10. So you would write bloating four out of 10 at a breakfast. And then maybe you started experiencing like stomach gurgling and you would put stomach gurgling six out of 10, whatever time it was at. And essentially you're logging what you eat and anything you notice throughout the day. And now for some people, in order to notice these things, you have to be asking yourself how you feel. Some people can become so used to feeling things like bloating, fatigue, energy crashes in the afternoon that they don't necessarily notice them anymore. So it does require us bringing a certain level of mindfulness to asking yourself, how do I feel? What am I looking for? Bloating, energy, brain fog, headaches, um, stomach pain, anything like that. You'll also write down your bowel movements throughout the day and you'll gather information. And so then you can start to take a look at your log and notice, oh, every single time that I eat kale, my bloating goes up by like three to four points. Maybe that's not a great food for me to be eating. You might notice, oh, I seem to have brain fog every single day and every single day, here are the foods that I'm eating. And then you're going to test. You're going to remove a food for at least three days, 72 hours is the amount of time that it takes for a food sensitivity to run its course for the most part. So you're going to remove that food for three days, sometimes even longer is better, a week, and then notice any changes. Okay, so maybe before, you know, my brain fog was at a seven out of 10 and I took away I'll, well, I'll t- 
yeah, I stopped eating Haribo gummy bears <laughs> and now my brain fog is only out of three out of 10. So it turns out sugar might be causing me to have brain fog. So you're experimenting in your own body and you're figuring out what makes you feel good and what doesn't make you feel good. And now I do want to add a little bit of a caveat here, which is for food sensitivities or foods that you're intolerant to, you shouldn't be doing this experiment and have like a shit ton of foods you're sensitive to. If you have more than like a couple food sensitivities, this is actually a symptom and not a root cause of your digestive issue. So there is something going on, whether it's bacterial overgrowth, dysbiosis, H. pylori, candida, something's going on under the surface that is causing these food sensitivities. So if there's more than a couple of food sensitivities that you notice for yourself, this is worth listening to part three of our podcast and part two and figuring out what the heck is causing your food sensitivities because a healthy digestive system might have a couple, but it shouldn't have many. And that's where we differ from the rest of the health Industry and why we look at the, the future of private healthcare. And Sarah and I, you know, when we're looking at people with maybe five, 10, and 15 symptoms, and we realize that it's not five to 10 to 15 different things that need action, it's more like one or two or three things that need a little bit more tender love and care. And we can correct many of those symptoms that have been created from those, you know, cascaded events from those one, two, or three things over, you know, they've developed over days, months, and years in some cases, and often even decades for some of the women that we talk to. And like we said in the beginning, we're both currently practicing uh, practitioners in what we do. And with Sarah's focus on functional nutrition medicine and my focus on the physical body and human movement strategies, um, my, unlike many of the podcasts that are out there, we're actually in the trenches, like doing the work. We're not some 20 year retired doctor regurgitating the same outdated information. So often when you hear us speaking, we get pretty passionate, which I think sometimes can be confused with overly aggressive at times, uh, maybe just in generally, you know, spread uh, out, out at the, the medical industry. But it's only because we're actively in the moment working oftentimes through intense challenges with some clients. And because of that, it, it does bring out that passion. But just so you know, it's only because we care. No, and I've been intense my whole life. My dad will tell you about it. Maybe we should get my dad on the I feel podcast. like that's why we're, we're such a good duo for each other because we're both like, ah. Yeah, my dad's like, you've been intense your whole life and I don't see you stopping anytime soon. So I just channel that intensity into healthy things. So something I want to mention about looking for intolerances are the five most common food intolerances. And some people, they don't know what they're looking for. And as Denon mentioned, we get so passionate about this because it's incredible how people will literally say, I feel like my life has changed and I cannot believe how I was living, feeling the way I was before by a few simple shifts. So I had a client who was experiencing extreme fatigue. She had adrenal-based issues. She had very low energy, brain fog all the time. And we worked on supporting her adrenals as well as removing gluten from her diet, which is very common cause of brain fog and fatigue and joint pain. And it was a complete 180. Now, adrenals take a little bit more time to fully get back to where they were or to really support adrenal insufficiency if that is what's going on. But even, yes, quite a long time. But even the simple fact of taking out gluten improved her energy and her brain fog a tenfold as well as her digestion. She started having daily bowel movements and it was just a complete 180 and is such a short period of time from identifying that sensitivity for her. So the five most common ones that you want to look for right away are gluten, dairy, soy, corn, and eggs. Now I'm not saying that these things are inherently bad or good. I'm just saying what the most common sensitivities are. And if you were to start to look and audit your diet and your nutrition, 
These would be the main ones you want to look at and see if you're consuming these things on a regular basis. I will also mention that sugar typically doesn't process sugar. Not talking about sugar that's in fruits. Processed added sugars typically tend to not make people feel that great. So that might be something you also want to look at added sugars in any products you're eating. Now I'll extend this a little further and let you know, let you in on a little secret about some sneaky ones. So as we talked about kale, which is considered for a lot of people a health food, can cause extreme digestive issues. Things like broccoli and cauliflower, if you eat them raw, are typically pretty hard to digest. Chickpeas, including hummus, beans, legumes, sometimes even nut and nut butters for people. And then foods that have certain types of fiber. So garlic and onion are two pretty common ones. And again, these things are not bad, but they can be sneaky things that might be causing you digestive issues that you might not necessarily notice because you would look at that and say like, hey, I'm eating healthy. I don't know why my digestion is always off. Not only that, but you can develop resistances over time. When I was younger, I had no issues with gluten, but over time, I developed a resistance as really most people do. Mm -hmm. And part of that is also the way that it's processed here in North America and how they actually take it through the processing, which has, of course, changed due to demand of food in the past little while. And it's interesting because you'll often hear people who have gluten sensitivities can go on vacation somewhere like Europe in Paris and they can eat bread, no problem. So... It is largely due to processing and some people might have certain uh, levels of tolerance. So maybe like a little bit, like personally, I can have a little bit of sourdough every few days and it doesn't affect my digestion. But even if I eat something like sourdough, which technically is not as glutinous, it will still cause me to have slower bowel movements if I'm eating it every single day. So some of these things you might notice you feel great by removing them. And then you might notice you have a little bit of a tolerance to have them like every once in a while if you choose to, but maybe not an everyday thing for your overall digestive health. And so once you identify what foods are causing you issues and you're sensitive to, as we touched on a little bit, it would be a good idea to remove them for at least a week, see how you feel, and then slowly start to continue from there. And then you might get to the point where, you know, you want to experiment. So as Denon mentioned, like these sensitivities for a lot of people, if they're not allergies, can be fluid. So maybe your body is under a lot of stress right now and you have lots of underlying digestive conditions going on or just lots of psychological stress. Your body will be reacting to more foods and it's possible that in a few weeks or a couple months when your body gets more healthy and a little bit more imbalanced, you're able to add these things back in and you're able to digest them better. So tip number one for if your digestion is off is to keep a very detailed digestive log and identify any big sensitivities or intolerances that could be causing you digestive issues. And the last thing I want to add on this is that as we briefly touched on at the beginning, um, sensitivities don't always manifest as acute GI issues. It could be stuff like brain fog, energy dips, fatigue, trouble focusing as well. So you want to look for the direct ones that are related to digestion, but you also want to be looking at the way that you feel in your brain and your cognition and energy levels and joint pain as well. So number two was going to be number one, but now it's number two. But I do want to say that this is the foundation of everything. I would go as far as to say that. And it is eating largely whole foods with minimal additives and being mindful of the amount of highly processed foods that you're eating. Now, sometimes this statement gets a little bit of backlash from people who say it is elitist or classist to say that people shouldn't eat highly processed foods. Now... 
let's, I, there's one little thing that I want to discuss and it's when we're saying whole foods, even things like frozen vegetables that you buy in a bag that are cheaper, that is not an overly processed food. So I'm not fully against processing in general. There is some processing that actually allows foods to be able for us to eat them in a better way and digest them with uh, better efficiency. However, we're referring to ultra processed foods that have a ton of additives and have lots of different ingredients like chemicals, fillers, binders that can be irritants to the gut. So I did want to just get that out of the way and say that we're referring to highly, highly processed foods with lots of additives when we're having this discussion. What about bread? Bread is a flour that's, you know, ground down and molded into a gelatinous material, basically a glue, and then heated and then risen into a loaf. Where would you consider this on the spectrum of low to highly processed foods? It would really depend on the type of bread. I'm sure there are some amazing breads out there. You can get gluten-free breads. I wouldn't necessarily consider bread a health food. And I would say that it is something that people would want to be mindful of just because the amount of processing that goes into it. I'm not against bread in general. There are some breads that are probably not very great to be eating on a regular basis. However, if somebody had a little bit of toast every once in a while and they got like an organic sprouted toast, cool. But it is something that you definitely, for the topic of this discussion, it is something that you definitely want to be mindful of for your digestion because it does go through a lot of processing. And typically there are lots of additives that give bread the texture that everybody knows and loves when you eat it. So essentially, we're creating a distinction between something that would be more like paleo, uh, you know, like raw from the earth or as it naturally comes uh, where humans have like little to do with like their hands on in the process to where humans and machines have basically their hands on every step of the process, plus, you know, adding uh, additives and other ingredients, um, creating a product that is more highly processed and farthest from its natural form. Like, for example, you were mentioning freeze dried fruit and vegetables, right? Um, the only processing done here is really the picking, the washing and the freezing. And so it's a very short hands on process. Mm -hmm. And I think it also depends on, again, the food, the ingredient list. And really, when we're looking at any food that comes in a package and has an ingredient list, you know, people always say, like, only eat foods that are the ingredient. And it's not necessarily realistic for a lot of people to only eat foods that have no ingredient list. But we do want to be able to look at a food list and be like, yeah, I know what that is. I would feel comfortable eating that for the most part. And now, yes, you know, every once in a while, people will eat things that are a little bit more processed. But when we're really looking at our digestive health, and if you are somebody who is struggling with digestive issues, I would go as far as to say, like, take a few weeks to completely eliminate that. Let your body get healthy and then start to reincorporate those things. Because if you are eating something that is irritating to you as an individual and irritating to your gut, and you're putting a little bit of feeding the fire just a little bit, stoking that fire every once in a while, it can still cause a lot of inflammation. So when we're looking just at the topic of digestive and gut health, we do want to stay away from as many products that have longer ingredient lists and have lots of additives and are highly processed, including bread. And we do want to look more towards foods that are single ingredients when we're looking at digestion so that it becomes really easy to notice what does and doesn't make you feel good. If I eat a piece of bread in amidst my breakfast and I don't feel very great, I have to go through the bread and see what were all the ingredients, which one of these might be causing me distress versus if I just have some quinoa at breakfast with my eggs, then I'm like, all right, well, it was either quinoa or eggs. And it makes things really simple when we're talking about this in the context of digestion. And so just going back to the note on 
Um, trying to understand what doesn't doesn't make you feel very good. Lots of processed foods have additives in them that are either for texture, for flavor, so they can last really long on shelves to bind things. And a lot of these ingredients can be irritating to the gut. And there is some research and data that does back this. And there are some ones that we commonly see cause issues in clients. And there is some uh, studies that will also back this information as well. And so the top ones that you would want to be looking for on a label and when we practice with our clients, we send everybody a list of essentially like red items, yellow items, and green items, which is, isn't saying only eat these things, but they're all just a list of common additives you would see so that if a client was wanting to branch out and eat maybe something that had a longer list of ingredients, they would have a really easy resource to be able to refer to, to, okay, if this was a red list item, that doesn't mean that I should never eat it, but I would look for that first if I do eat something that gives me digestive issues. So one of these is highly processed vegetable and seed oil. So we're talking about canola oil, soybean oil, peanut oil, vegetable oil, and all of the ones that fall underneath that category. Artificial sweeteners are another really big one. And so even things like xylitol, erythritol, these can cause a lot of GI distress. Denon and I can both attest to that. And they're commonly found in things that are labeled as sugar-free. And even if something is labeled as sweetened with stevia or monk fruit, you have to double check the label because more often than not, the first sweetener will be something like erythritol and the second one will be something like monk fruit or stevia. For example, for the past couple of years, it's been a big trend for a lot of people to try to make their baking healthier, right? They want to remove the sugars. So, you know, when you're when you're doing your baking stuff and you want to buy powdered monk fruit or stevia, um, most of the time these require a binder when those ingredients have been isolated. So although the package might say stevia or monk fruit sweetener, check the ingredients because I can almost certainly bet that the most grocery stores uh, brands that are going to be uh, providing you like the, the powdered monk fruit and the powdered stevia will also be bound with erythritol, which is also a natural sweetener, however, is a common digestive sensitive, however, is oftentimes However, is commonly a, a digestive issue for a lot of people. I know for myself personally, kind of makes me feel like I need to shit my pants. So it's not a fun situation when we're trying to bake with that. We tried to do that before, didn't work super well. We do have a couple brands that we have no affiliations with, but we do like their product. Um, one is a powdered stevia that we use from New Roots, which is bound with an inulin fiber. And that's pretty sweet. Uh, it's also, it's, it's like highly concentrated. You need a little bit of it and it goes a long way. But my personal favorite, it's a bit of a pricier option, but it's a liquid monk fruit sweetener from Sweet Monk, uh, which it's been shown in many studies that it doesn't cause an insulin spike. Whereas research on stevia seems to be a little bit back and forth. Although Sarah, while wearing a continuous glucose monitor, hasn't found it to affect her. But again, that's individual evidence and could be different for some people. So if you do have a little bit of extra spending money, I would recommend like a liquid monk fruit sweetener. And then a couple other additives that are really important to keep an eye out, especially when we're talking about digestion and GI inflammation are polysorbate 80, any sort of binder, gum, or emulsifier. So that's things like carrageenan is a really common one, locust bean gum, anything that ends in a gum can cause a lot of irritation to the gut. And again, it's not going to cause irritation for everyone, but if you are experiencing GI issues, this is something that you would want to look out for as it is in a lot of quote unquote healthier alternatives, such as almond milk and plant-based milks as well. 
And all of these things, again, can lead to GI inflammation. So the easiest way to avoid GI irritants, and when I say GI, I'm referring to gastrointestinal. I realize I should probably preface that. So when we're looking out for these things, they can be inflammatory to somebody's digestive tract. And so the easiest way to make sure that you're not getting in any sort of irritants is to focus on mainly whole foods. So meat, veggies, produce, whole grains, all of the stuff that you hear all of the time. I'm pretty sure whenever we're talking about healing strategies in any podcast, we talk about this. So eating largely whole foods with minimal additives is a great place to start if you're experiencing digestive issues. Number three is meal hygiene. So we all know about dental hygiene. We all know about personal hygiene. Some people talk about sleep hygiene. Meal hygiene is also huge. Now, Most of us live our lives in a chronic state of fight or flight, stressed out, busy bees, type A, getting shit done, going from one thing to the next thing. (laughs) I was just picturing Denon in my mind. I'm like, what are all the ways I could describe this? No, (laughs) just joking. So then we bring this fight or flight mode and let's talk a little bit about the nervous system. So we have fight or flight, your sympathetic nervous system state, and then the parasympathetic is called rest and digest. So judging by the names alone, how effectively do you think you're going to digest a food when you're in fight or flight? Now, when our body's in the state of fight or flight, we are actually drawing resources away from the digestive system because your body's like, shit girl, if you are being attacked by a bear, we do not have time to be using energy to digest food because digestion takes energy and resources. So the vagus nerve is the main nerve that's involved in the gut brain connection. And it can send signals and messages about the type, amount, and volume of nutrients that you've eaten. So that allows your body to have better hunger and satiety cues. And it also allows a greater connection for digestion as it is a really, really integral nerve in supporting your body sending signals to the organs that influence digestion so that they can be functioning optimally. So taking a few deep breaths and getting yourself into a parasympathetic state is really key for meal hygiene. Some other things that are really important is to slow down, chew your food well. I think they say it's somewhere between 25 to 40 bites, 40 chews per bite, which is a lot. Most of us chew it maybe like two to five times if we're lucky, couple bites, scarf it down the hole, as well as eating undistracted. So again, if we're diverting our energy and attention elsewhere, not only is your digestion going to potentially suffer as a consequence, but you'll also be less satisfied if you're not actually being present with the fact that you are eating. And so things like scrolling on your phone, working, answering emails, watching TV, these can all draw you away from your meal and towards something else which can affect digestion as well as just how overall full and satisfied you feel after a meal. So number three is meal hygiene, slow down, be present with your meal and get into that parasympathetic state or rest and digest mode to eat. Plus, I think that's just so rude if you eat your meal with your phone out, like just be a good guest, be with the people, be with the food, be present. So to recap, number one. Number one is to keep a digestive log and identify any symptoms, sensitivities, and intolerances you may have. Number two. Number two is to eat largely whole foods with minimal additives and to focus more on whole unprocessed foods. Number three. Number three is meal hygiene. Make sure you're in that rest and digest mode. Slow down while you're eating and be present with your food. And this brings us to number four. So number four is all about meal timing and amount of food that you're eating. Now, it's quite common nowadays that we have such 
easy access to food for many people to be snacking or eating little bits of things all day. Or maybe I often have clients say they don't have time to eat full meals when we get started together. So they're just a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And this can be really um, detrimental to our digestion. So there's something called your migrating motor complex. And essentially it's just like this little system that comes and like sweeps things that haven't really gone through the digestive process Um, properly out of the way. So it's essentially like a cleaning system for your digestion. And we need to be allowing adequate time between meals in order for your migrating motor complex to be functioning optimally. So if you're snacking all day, you're going to impact the ability of the MMC to function optimally, which can lead to digestive issues such as bacterial overgrowth. If some of the food isn't being swept away and we have undigested food, it can start to ferment and cause bacteria. You can have lots of gas, bloating, and just overall GI distress. So we want to make sure that we're having adequate time between our meals, somewhere between three to five hours. If you have digestive issues, I would suggest pushing it a little bit further to like the four or five hour mark. And that can be a really, really huge help for just allowing your digestion to work its course and to not create any sort of irritation in that sense. What about before bedtime? Same thing. Yeah. So that's, there's a little bit of a caveat there. Typically you want to wait at least a few hours before bed. Um, you want to have your last meal or snack a few hours before bed to allow your body to digest and get into a deeper sleep. However, for some women, depending on the amount they're eating throughout the day, their stress levels, their blood sugar balance, some people might actually need to have a small snack about 90 minutes before bed. If you are someone who is a light sleeper or who wakes up around two to 5 a.m., Um, That typically would be a sign that you might be someone who could benefit from a nighttime snack. But for digestion, general rule of thumb is we don't want to be eating too close to bed because you do want your body to be able to digest that food and get into a deep sleep. Next. So now we're talking about meal amounts. So this is very individualized, right? We each have a different unique metabolic blueprint. We can handle a different amount of food per sitting. It also depends on the type of food that you're eating. Is it more higher volume foods, things like a bunch of veggies that are high fiber that your body needs to break down? Or is it relatively easy to digest food like fruit? So it would depend on type of food you're eating and who you are, but we don't want to be eating too much at meals that we're just asking our digestive system to do too much. It's like putting this, trying to put something down your little sink, what's it called? Garburator? Garburator, yeah. You're trying to put down like a whole watermelon through your garburator. It's just not going to work that well. So we do need to be eating a good amount for our body. When I was studying Ayurveda at school, my Ayurveda teacher suggested the rule of thirds with our um, with the amount that we're eating per meal and our hunger. So she says, before you eat, not while you're eating, you want to have about a third of your stomach filled with fluids. So there is some schools of thought that say having water or drinking during mealtimes can dilute your acid and enzymes and lead to less effective digestion. So ideally you want to be hydrated going into a meal. So that would be the first third. The second third is food. So we want to eat not until we're full or stuffed, but just right before that. So we have enough nutrition, but we're not overstressing or overstuffing ourselves. And that last third is air or space. And so if you start to think about this, this does require a level of mindfulness where we're listening to our body, tuning into our hunger cues, and again, eating slow and not just scarfing things down. And then all of a sudden we're so stuffed. So eating a good amount per meals is really important. And then also making sure that we are eating enough throughout the day. And this often gets really overlooked, but it takes energy for us to be able to digest and break down food. And when we're in a state of Uh, malnutrition or relative energy deficiency, 
your body is not going to have the adequate resources available to support healthy digestive functioning. And so this can manifest as bloating. Constipation is super, super common. And if you talk to anyone who's been on a pretty um, extreme or restrictive diet, they'll probably tell you that their digestion suffered as a result. And that's because it takes energy to digest food. So we want to make sure that we're getting a good balance of nutrients and also getting enough nutrition throughout the day. So again, meal timing is really important, having enough space between meals. And then meal amount is also important. So not eating too much per sitting, but also making sure that we eat enough food throughout the day. So let's take us through back to the, the, the four that we've done so far. Number one. Number one is to keep a digestive log. So writing down anything that makes you feel not great so you can identify what does and doesn't make you feel your best digestive wise. Two. Number two is eating largely whole unprocessed foods. Three. Number three is meal hygiene. Number four. And number four is having good space between your meals and making sure that you're eating the right amount for your body. And number five, the fifth tip and foundation that needs to be focused on before you start looking at any other factors that we're going to be covering in episode two and three is. Number five is making sure that you're adequately hydrated as well as looking at nutrients, so micronutrients that you're getting for optimal digestion. So I talked a little bit about this, but we do want to make sure that we have healthy hydration. And if you think about water or quality of water and hydration. It's very lubricating. So people who are dehydrated tend to have constipation, hard stools. And so making sure that we have adequate hydration, and we talked a little bit about this on our podcast with Roland, but we also want to make sure we're having high quality water that has enough minerals in it so our body is actually absorbing the water that we're drinking. And when we start to look at specific nutrients, this can also be really important for digestion. So something I see a lot with clients is they're eating a very, very low fiber diet. And now if you have underlying digestive conditions such as SIBO, so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or some sort of bacterial imbalances, sometimes fiber can actually make you feel worse. So if you find when you eat lots of fiber, you have more digestive symptoms, this could be a sign that something else is going on under the surface that needs to be addressed. But when we're talking about the general guidelines or suggestions for healthy digestive system that is backed by a lot of research and data, the evidence is quite clear. Our body thrives on plant fibers and getting a variety of nutrients. Now, for some people, this might be having more fruit, which is typically a little bit easier to digest than vegetables and doesn't have as many anti-nutrients. Um, for some people, this could be just rotating their produce. And the general rule of thumb is to have about 30 to 40 different types of produce and plant fibers throughout a week, which for some people, they're, they'll be lucky to have like two or three of those. But essentially, the um, idea behind this is we do want to be rotating our produce. So something like meal prep can be great, but you see this all the time in the fitness community where the people are quite literally eating broccoli and string beans every single day for months and sometimes years on end, which is not great for our digestive system. Your digestive system needs a variety of nutrients and fibers and different types of plant material to support a healthy and diverse microbiome. And if we lack diversity, we can have imbalances of gut bacteria. So that might mean we're deficient in the helpful bacteria, which creates an environment where we can have an overgrowth of some of the opportunistic bacteria. The evil bacteria. The bad guys. And it can just overall lead to not a great diversity. And if we think of our, our microbiome kind of like a rainforest, right? We do want that diversity so that it's working in synergy with 
with all of the other bacteria that are in there. And we do want a good ratio of gut bacteria, which is about four good guys to every one potentially harmful guy. And that's what would be considered a healthy microbiome. So we can support this by having a variety of produce throughout our week and just making sure that we are rotating our produce. And now if we want to start to look at amount of fiber consumed in a day, a general rule of thumb is somewhere between 25 to 35 grams. I find when I work with clients and we look through their log, maybe without thinking about it, people are getting something like 10, (laughs) which is not great. And again, whenever I throw these numbers, I always want to preface by saying that every person is so different. So you don't want to be like so super glued to this one number you heard if it's not feeling good for your body. Sometimes we do need to look at Um, the amount that feels good for us. And if it is a number that's extremely low, we might need to look at why we are having an intolerance to eating more fiber and work on healing whatever the underlying cause of that is. But it is really important that we do have adequate fiber and that we're having a variety of produce and different types of plant fibers in our nutrition for optimal gut health. Now, plant fibers, some of them are considered prebiotics, and that essentially means that it is something that feeds the biota, so the gut bacteria that you have, which supports your gut bacteria health and their ability to reproduce. We also have something called probiotics, which technically, if we're going to get granular, any sort of bacteria culture in food is not a probiotic. Probiotics have certain stipulations to be able to call it that. But when we're talking about stuff like fermented foods, they are adding more bacteria to our gut. So they are providing us with a greater diversity and a greater concentration of bacteria as that food passes through our digestive system. So another great way to support your overall digestive health with your nutrition is to include fermented foods daily. And again, I'm going to string it back to the fact that if you have fermented foods and you're starting to experience more symptoms, this is probably a sign that you have some sort of bacterial imbalance. So my favorite way to include fermented foods daily is to have one or two tablespoons of sauerkraut with a few meals a day. You can also do... Oh my God, Bubby's pickles. Bubby's pickles. We love those in this house. So we can't even get them. We yeah, eat. they're gone in like a day. Yeah, I, I, think it, I think it causes us bacterial overgrowth because we just crush a whole bottle. Yeah. Also, kimchi is a great one. Uh, kefir, uh, true yogurt. So actual fermented yogurt, not like the Liberty stuff that you buy in the grocery store. Um, the real pickles, as Denon mentioned, as well as kombucha is a really popular one. So again, when we're looking at actual specifics of things we can include for great gut health, we want to have some fermented foods prebiotics, have a wide variety of micronutrients, so rotating out our produce, as well as ensuring that we're adequately hydrated to support digestion. And that is number five. So those are the five factors that you need to be first focused on and looking at when you are looking to begin to optimize, or even if you have great digestion, so you think these are some things that you can start to be aware of all the way from number one, creating a food log to number five, hydration and nutrients and different fibers in your diet. And just to bring it back to the fact that this is part one of a three-part series is, you know, many clients will come to us and they think they have like these chronic issues or they've got like a lot of, I often have clients say, I got a lot of shit going on. How much time do you have on consultation calls? And sometimes it really is just implementing these five things that can have a profound difference in the way that they feel in their digestive health. And sometimes clients don't actually need to like pay for all of these tests or they don't need to do an extreme protocol for their digestion. They just need these five simple things. And so it's helpful to just start to 
try to give yourself a chance to to ride out the foundations and see how much your symptoms improve. And even doing that before you seek out testing, unless you have obvious signs that could be something that's potentially dangerous or harmful. So like we'll talk about this more, but for example, if you're having black tarry stools and that could be indicative of H. pylori, or if you're having chronic diarrhea that's leading to deficiencies in malnutrition and dehydration, you would want to get a test to figure out why you're having that. But if your digestive system is just a little bit off, you have you know, bloating, gas, a little bit of constipation. These are the things that you want to start with before jumping into any sort of testing or protocol to ensure that it's not just daily habits and lifestyle that are causing your symptoms. As you can probably tell, we are extremely passionate about sharing this information, which is why even amongst a very busy practice, we always take the time to provide you all with this free education. And if you love this information and you think somebody could benefit or you wanted to spread the good word, which helps us grow, we would love for you to give us a five-star review on Spotify and slash or iTunes. And if you love this, you can take a screenshot and share it in your Instagram stories. And we would love to hear your feedback and if you tag us as well. Or if you've got anybody in your life that you know they'd struggle with digestive issues, send this to them and this will helpfully help start them on the cascade of the podcast that we have to come. At the end of the day, we love what we do, but the main goal is making women healthy again. And we try to eventually, we want to help millions and millions of people. We want to put on conventions uh, provided by Embodied Wellness so we can help people in the masses. And that's that's really what we're trying to do at the end of the day. So thank you. We are out here doing the damn things. We are. Spreading the good word, making women healthy, making future generations healthy. And I'm so grateful that you all are a part of it. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's podcast. See you next time, Wellness Gang. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. This podcast provides general information and discussions about health and related subjects. The information and other content provided in this podcast or any linked materials are not intended and should not be construed as medical advice, nor is the information a substitute for professional medical expertise or treatment. If you or any other person has medical concern, you should consult with your healthcare provider and seek other professional medical treatment. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you may have heard on this podcast or any link materials. If you think you may have a medical emergency, call your doctor or emergency services immediately. The opinions and views expressed on this podcast are of no relation to those of any academic, hospital, health practice, or other institution. Yeah.